2: This is pretty much pop,
3: it is I, Chicky. and we are today talking about cartoons. I do not know why I was asked to introduce the episode about cartoons, for I am not a cartoon, and I have never been a cartoon, and people often think that I might be a cartoon when they only hear my voice, but then they see me in all my splendid glory, and they see that I am not a cartoon, but that is what it will be discussed today.
1: My name is Erica Spires, i living in New York City, and I always wanted to be on our cartoon
2: someday. I'm Brian Hurt, and here's my impression of Porky Pig. He's smarter than he looks.
3: (laughs) My name is Dee Bradley Baker, and I'm a voice actor in Los
0: Angeles.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dee. This is Mark Linton-Meyer. I did not speak before. Dee had reached out to me quite a long time ago in the partially examined life heyday, let's say, to maybe talk about Marcuse or something brainy like that, but... We thought better of it. <laughs> <laughs> there are topics that float around that, in fact, that might still happen someday. We just haven't gotten to Marcusa. But rather than do something that uh, Dee was actually interested in as a consumer, yes, we're going to make you talk about your day job.
0: <laughs> Normally, I'm a dealer, not a user. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, yeah, let's talk about it. let's, let's talk about. Uh, I just got back from Comic Con, so there's lots to talk about.
1: Oh yeah. What were you doing at Comic-Con?
0: You just kind of go to stupid parties, and you say hello to people, and fans say hi, and uh, you do a panel or two or three, and um, you either enjoy it or you have a miserable time, and I had a lot of fun.
1: Were you promoting a particular show
0: or movie? Yeah, they brought me down for American Dead, and then I did a Marvel interview and a uh, Mark Evanier voiceover panel where he he's a guy who loves animation and he brings in lots of cartoon voice actors and has us show off and then read a script in funny voices and the audience loves it
1: oh how fun
3: yeah it's great fun and we will link to your imdb page so we don't feel the need to go through (laughs) your 500 some credits there's a lot of credits on there it's a
0: lot of credits yeah a lot of things these days it's american dad and there's a lot of stuff in the star wars universe and a lot of animals for disney kids shows And I was Perry the Platypus on Phineas and Ferb and Klaus on American Dad. I'm just kind of sprinkled all over the place. Sometimes I'm human, but often I'm not.
1: The new Dora movie, right?
0: Yes, yes, very good. Yes, I'm Boots the monkey.
1: That's so exciting. (laughs)
0: At least I think I am. I have to see the movie to make sure they didn't cut me out.
1: (laughs) That movie actually looks really great. Like, I'm excited to see it.
0: The stuff that I saw made me laugh. I thought it was smart and kind of fun. And, you know, it's for little kids,
2: but I thought it was fun. It looked like it was fun to me. Wait a second. It's for little kids. I feel like we're getting to the theme of our podcast. It's for adults, right? It plays
3: to both. Yeah. The question that spurred this originally was sort of an extension of our high and low culture thing or our video game discussion, which is cartoons. We watch them as kids. It seems to be kids entertainment. There are more and more adult cartoons these days, but even the adult cartoons, it seems like there's something, you know, they're they're guilty pleasures. There's something juvenile about them, maybe. What is the deal with this, especially when these things that are are sort of in between, things that like stoner teenagers watch uh, (laughs) that some adults can stand, but some have a hard time with?
0: I think about cartoons the way that I think about anything that we make popular music or we tell stories. I mean, we humans do that, right? We make stories. We try to craft a linear narrative out of our existence to try to make sense of the flood of chaos <laughs> before everything falls apart. And laughter and cartoons, I think, render things in sort of a bite-sized, easily digestible manner that's, it's mostly all beneficial, really. I'm going to say it's a good thing, I, but I'm, I'm prejudiced about that kind of thing, I guess.
2: I've got to say, Mark, when you pointed me to that Reddit thread, which we should link to also, about people being creeped out by adults who watch kids' cartoons, it didn't even occur to me that that was a thing. Maybe it's just the the circles I run in, people letting their nerd flags fly and doing whatever. It seems like one of the more acceptable things among my crowd. Yeah, sure, I mean. And part of it is, if you have kids, having cartoons that are really for kids but are bearable to adults, is really a good thing, right? I don't have any, but I know those who do, and they really appreciate those adult references. I mean, not body humor necessarily, but something that only an adult would get. So the kid's watching at one level and the adult's watching at the other level, and at least they're getting that little extra something out of it.
0: Oh, yeah, and there's more and more of that anymore. The series Phineas and Ferb comes to mind. I mean, that's ostensibly a show that's for kids, but my gosh, it's great, smart fun to watch for a grown-up. Great, smart songs, And very heartfelt and sweet and smart and a wonderful entertainment these days when kids, you know, they can watch their show a hundred times in a day and they just digest it incessantly. And so it it makes it a lot more bearable for the grown-ups if it plays to a grown-up sensibility like Bugs Bunny used to and going all the way back to Buster Keaton and all that. It's really just kind of an extension of of vaudeville is what uh, Bugs Bunny was, which was something that played to grown-ups as well as to kids.
1: Absolutely. I was thinking of that recently. I'm an actor, so I'm doing a show right now that has a lot of vaudevillian humor in it. And some people grew up with that, and some of them didn't. And I was thinking, like, I remember watching Abbott and Costello. I remember watching, like, old movies with Jack Lemmon and Laurel and Hardy and things like that. But I think that a lot of it probably did come from Merry Melodies. Because you're right, that is basically like an extension of vaudeville, right? And a consumable television format.
0: The rules still apply. For the kind of storytelling that reaches an audience clearly, sets up and pays off, just kind of plays through in sort of an Aristotelian manner. It's quite universal, and it plays to kids as well as grown-ups. You can't just throw out stories and ideas randomly. Even a show is with the creative license like Adventure Time. or cinnamon bun on Adventure Time. That show, when we recorded it, first it seemed like it was a complete mess, that there was nothing linear whatsoever about it. And yet, once it was finally rendered in the collaborative process of the animation, it actually does have a story. It's kind of a loopy and odd story, but there's a sense to it. Ultimately, all of what you do in animation, I think, has a story behind it, and often a subtext, and often innuendo, and a lot of things going on that's below the surface that make it quite interesting.
1: Adventure Time is a great one. Speaking of like a wide reach, my nephews, who were four and two at the time, introduced me to the Netflix series Larva. Have you seen this one? No. What's that? It's made by Tuba Entertainment in Seoul, South Korea. So it's all like slapstick toilet humor. And it's like these two little larvae who are like either one, I don't think either of them have hands. They're just like like these little slug type creatures, right? <laughs> and they just use their tongues to do everything. It's extremely gross and all the things that they use their tongues for and they can use their tongues and they can fart. And it's total kids humor but as I was watching this it was so brilliant because I found it fascinating and also what my brother had brought up to me he's like, we watch larva a lot there's no English language in it. There's no language necessity because everybody understands language of humor.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that like the fart. I kind of think of like the fart as like the essence of comedy. It's the it's the <laughs> or, It's the ur joke. It's the first act of creation where we take the world into us, we digest and and derive what we want from the nourishment from it and then we poop and fart and that's our creative act. <laughs> and there's something uh, just kind of primal and basic about that i think
2: we just published a podcast with uh, yakov Smirnov, and he had this whole complicated formula for comedy and i, I think yours is definitely simpler <laughs> which is it's the fart so i think he really spent a lot of time on that phd when he could have just ripped one
0: if you try stand-up or children's theater things get actually very simple very quick if you want to survive
1: <laughs> if you say rip one and be done and that's the new formula i think that's great
0: Rip when and be done. I like that.
1: Would it be wrong to ask you to make that into soundbite? Taking it in and then ripping it out?
3: What are you asking our guest
0: to
1: do? Yeah, I'm asking Dee if he wants to show us if there's an intake sound and then just a fart extraordinaire.
0: Yes, well, the essence of comedy is taking the world in. Digesting it. And producing... Creation. Creativity.
2: (laughs) And the, 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 that's all folks.
0: So there we go. And then there's laughter, there's recognition, it's universal. Any language, no matter what, can understand it.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Dee, thank you.
3: Yeah, so for getting back to basics there, then slapstick as well, which was something that, strange, like the only thing I was not allowed to watch in terms of cartoons was the Roadrunner, because it was just constant slam, squish, slam, squish, like there was no, dialogue there was no jokes there was it was just violent act after violent act and the other thing was the three stooges which as a little kid partially because i wasn't allowed to watch it but like it just seemed like something that was for older people and it's a lot of slapping people in the face but it sounds like this is just as primal like getting slapped having something vaguely humanoid looking (laughs) getting squished like those are just as basic as farts
0: The fart is certainly the primal, visceral beginning of all, but (laughs) but ultimately we evolve a sense, a need, a craving for justice, and a lot of vaudeville is about right and wrong and about justice, where the underdog gets what he deserves or she deserves, and the bad guy, the powerful jerk, gets what's coming to him. For instance, the dichotomy of, of Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny. Daffy Duck is his is benevolent chaos. That's what he's about. It's kind of the Three Stooges. But with Bugs Bunny, it's about justice. Bugs Bunny doesn't come for you unless you've wronged him. And then he comes for you. Of course you know this means war. That is Bugs Bunny. He's going to write the scales of justice and make things fair. And that always was true with The Roadrunner, where The Roadrunner is innocent, is sweet, completely not guilty of anything, and then you have this arrogant, mean coyote who always gets what he deserves. And there's justice in that. We love to see a bite-sized affirmation, I think, of what's fair, which is important to us as a social creature, because we have to establish that kind of sensibility among ourselves. And part of the way we do that is we make stories or maybe songs or cartoons to affirm this kind of normative expectation, you know, that we need to work together to
2: collaborate. And that short form, that three minutes of a traditional cartoon or in vaudeville, three to seven minutes, you really have to paint in some pretty broad strokes and establish things with those visceral feelings, right? There's not time to set things up. So like a short story, you have to You go with archetypes and know right away who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. You know, vaudeville has the costumes and the makeup and the shtick, but cartoons could even take it one step further because you didn't have to put someone in a costume to make them look grotesque. You could just draw a creature that was grotesque and immediately recognizable that way.
0: Yeah, well, Looney Tunes is the logical extension of vaudeville. It takes it as far as it wants to go. That's part of what's so exhilarating about it with the way they play that out with Bugs and Daffy and all the rest. That's part of why, why it's still funny and why it still endures. It just shaves it right down to the basic essence of what works in storytelling, I think.
1: So what do you do as a voice actor? You as an actor know some of those rules of vaudeville. And, and like when I think of vaudeville, I think of visual cues. How do you as a voice actor and a person who is not showing your face, how do you do that in an auditory way?
0: You know, often you have the cast with you. But you do have the script in front of you, and you have the show creators with you, too. And like vaudeville or live performing of any kind, like stand-up or improv, it's collaborative. You're listening to who you're performing with. And like doing stunt work or whether it's Buster Keaton or the Three Stooges or anything like that, You know, you can go even further back if you want to, you know, Comedia and that kind of thing, which is part of the same lineage, actually. But it's very much listening to the story and listening to your co-players in the story so that you actually have timing. You're not just reading words, just like you're not just saying words on a stage. You're listening to each other. That's half of what you're doing, actually, as a voice actor, I think. When you're speaking, you're also listening. If you're not, you're just reading words, and it sounds like it, too. It's a really collaborative, improvisational space that we create what we do. It may be very clear from the script what you think we're going to do, but when you get in there, they may have a very, (laughs) very different idea, or they may have a lot of specifics to show you that will take it actually in a very different direction than you originally thought. It's often of no use whatsoever to prepare a lot. I like to think it's like, I don't really come prepared, I show up ready. That's my job—is to be ready. It's very improvisational. So it's there is an audience and there is interaction, but vaudeville and that kind of stuff is actually much more planned out and precise, like a circus stunt or a stunt fight or something like that, where it's really, you know, you watch the the Marx Brothers and all, it's just breathtaking. Or Buster Keaton, you know, it's just—it's it's breathtaking how beautifully choreographed this art is. We find that through improvisational means with the script and the show creator in voice acting.
3: So just a very basic question. In most cases, right, you do the voices first, so they're animating to you to be able to adjust to the expressions, or are there a lot of times where you are... Have there been times where you're... You know, the animation's already done, and you're just watching it and trying to sync up with that, or... or...
0: There's that, too. Most anime, you're lip-syncing to something that's already been animated in another language... You're trying to to make it fit in the mouth flaps. It's like lip syncing to a puppet. It's not necessarily <laughs> easy. <laughs> it should be paid way more than it pays. But most all animation, uh, union animation, they animate to the voice, to the vocal performance. Now, occasionally you'll come back and you do little fixes later on, but for the most part, your performance leads the animation is kind of how I think of it, is you're collaboratingly creating... The raw materials that the animators will then animate to.
1: You are usually in the same room as the other actors? Often,
0: but other times not. Other times you just simply have to imagine. It's like doing green screen work in a movie is how I think of it. Where there's a lot of shots where these actors are not standing on Mars, you know, and that monster is not there. Or often there's nobody with them at all. But they have to imagine that. They have to bring that fully to their performance. Otherwise, It doesn't read. It doesn't feel authentic. The same is true in voice acting. You have to have that reality of setting and the cast and what was just said to you and how you're interacting with them. That's all got to be real specific and present for it to work.
3: What percentage of the time would you say you actually see the final product, or do you just, in a lot of gigs, like, it's done, that was the the end of the day— I'm wondering how, how, what your take is or whether you, you have a strong opinion, whether you find that the creators have messed with your timing after the fact or, you know, done things in the editing that you wouldn't expect.
0: It's their show. It's their circus. And ultimately, after I've made my creation, once I've given them in my performance, it's theirs to do as they wish. Usually, I don't have a chance to watch it. I'm lucky to work on a lot of cartoons, and I just don't have as much time. Plus, my kids are older. They're not watching cartoons as much. They're watching The Bachelor or some horrible show like that. (laughs) When they're younger, I I could watch the shows I make with them.
2: (laughs) Um, You know, Dee, I'm sure it sounded like Mark was asking you a question. He's really, in a roundabout way, asking whether I actually (laughs) listen to this podcast after we're done recording it and... Um <laughs> sorry,
3: insulted by removing half of what Brian says. No, no, no. <laughs> but the timing is the thing that I guess seems to be, you know, if you're just asking sort of what's the advantage, what would make animation a fundamentally different thing than live action? You know, of course, it's that you can more easily... With CGI, the barrier is getting closer in terms of being able to do whatever you can imagine in animation and being restricted in live action. You know, Of course, there are budgetary reasons that you could do crazier things with animation without having to make it look actually realistic. But sort of beyond that, just what makes Family Guy or American Dad different than a sitcom, even though they have, is a lot of the timing, is, you know, that you can have visual jokes that completely the camera's shifting to another part of the world, like, you could do a similar thing, I guess, in a movie with tight editing and things, but there's something very natural about that for... Unnatural timing is natural to animation.
0: Yes. In, in animation, you're creating an element that is later married and timed up and synced up with other elements that are later layered on. That's one thing that's different. Whereas a sitcom, when you're shooting that sitcom, it's in the can and you've got it. You've got the performance, you've got the camera takes, all you got to do is edit it and you got it. With animation... You got it after about a year. Just from an actor's standpoint, it's quick, it's air conditioned, you don't have to memorize lines, and you don't have to sit in a trailer all day. There's much more freedom and much more variety, and you can have the career much for much longer amount of time. Those are the aspects of it that I really, really like. Plus, you can also enjoy anonymity, which you can turn off or on at a convention, but otherwise you can just kind of have an, a normal life. It's a different pitch of energy and expectation and pressure, really. When you're doing a, a movie or a television show, you've got 200 people, 300 people standing around there waiting for you to do your thing, and you've got to do it right now. You've got to do it at this moment. And an animation is much looser, and you don't have... 200 people standing around staring at you.
2: <laughs> no, on the flip side of that, Dee, I feel like I don't hear as much about traditional stage or screen actors having issues with their voices getting ruined the way that with voice actors, it's it's a more of a thing. And I read at length on your website about how you have your vocal exercises and your own techniques for preserving your voice. Am I wrong about that? Are TV actors ruining their voices in ways that It's just not as well publicized?
0: It is very different. It just depends on the gig. I mean, you can have a a television show that takes place in a war zone, and you've just got screaming and dying and yelling, and it's terrible, and it rips up their voices. They've probably got a lot of time in between the takes, whereas if you're doing a video game, there can be a lot of, of yelling and screaming, and it's just you for four hours doing this really intensive, horrible, difficult vocal work, and that you've got, to be, you've got to be very careful with. That is very different.
1: Now that makes a lot of sense, how you use the mic and how quiet you can be, but like, how, you know, getting close to it. Things like, my husband used to front a metal band. I don't know if I told you guys that. At one point, he suffered some vocal damage when he was in high school, and as it happens, and went to somebody who gave him a lot of great techniques for it, and then he ended up learning how to scream in a safe manner. Yeah.
0: They can do kind of thing like that cuz I use that. I had a good singing teacher, good uh, opera teacher uh, taught me for a few years that gave me some good ideas. But yeah, the inhaling is really it's really useful. It sounds horrible, but it's it doesn't hurt you necessarily as much.
1: Really? So the inhaling doesn't hurt your chords as much as an exhale sounds? No,
0: I'd rather go <coughs> then <coughs> the inhale is much easier, much <coughs> It feels good to do that actually.
2: <laughs> to be monster, I really regret that this is audio only. This is, <laughs> it's, well, it's this is something to look at. It's totally oh, great. Oh, it's fast.
1: great. This is so exciting. I love
2: it. You know, just in the last hour before we started recording, I remembered that I had seen a movie called I Know That Voice, which I was wondering if you had an opinion about, and then I realized, well, boy, I bet he was in it, and sure enough. You were, and I think the first time you appear in the movie is you're crying like a baby. I used to do that on stand-up,
0: when I did stand-up back in the in the late 80s. I didn't know I was a voice actor. I was a closeted voice actor. I didn't know that's what I was going to do. <laughs> you know, I didn't think of myself as an actor. I just like doing weird stuff on a stage to get people to like me or to get their attention. I'd cry like a baby. <laughs> that kind of stuff, and
1: like the guy that was in uh, the the Police Academy movies. Uh,
3: Michael Winslow.
1: Yeah, Michael Winslow. Oh, yeah,
0: he's brilliant good. He's a sound effects guy. I wouldn't call him a voice actor, per se. He does really awesome sound effects. But the difference is that I'm hired to do the weird stuff, but there's an intent underneath it. There's a, a conversation that's happening underneath it, which that requires an actor, and that's when they call me. If they need sound effect stuff, they're probably just going to go with a a recording because it's not specific to the story.
1: Interesting. So like when you create these characters, I was telling my husband about you before we got on here and he was like looking through all this. He's like, oh, a lot of these characters are like they, they have like sounds, but they don't have like they don't speak English. And so I'm wondering now with you saying that in your own way, create a language for these characters.
0: I mean, like the Box Troll movie, for instance, they didn't know what they were going to do with these guys because these little Box Trolls, the are like a movie. They didn't talk, and they didn't know how to get the sense that they're communicating a, a conversation, and to what degree do they speak in English, or do they just make guttural sounds because they're supposed to be scary-looking to humans, but they're ultimately sweet. They're sweet little creatures. But they've got a sound, kind of, and so they were trying to puzzle that out. And so I collaborated with them on that and worked up a kind of a tone and a language with them. And then we kind of went from there. So that, that was very much they were looking for a language. But even like a Nickelodeon's Airbender series, when Aang is talking to Momo or Appa, his creatures, he's speaking and they're communicating, you know, intent and thought sentience underneath what they're saying. So there's really a conversation happening. It's really fun to do. I mean, as an actor, it's a great free creative space. I mean, that's part of what I think is so captivating to get back to the theme about animation is that it's a uniquely collaborative art form where you've got hundreds of people that are working to on this finalized product, it's easy to say, oh, well, he's the voice of that character, and he's that character. And I I don't really think of it that way. I think, yeah, I did the voice, and I may have kind of led the performance with my acting, but you've got the people that wrote it. The director, you've got the timer, you've got the people who color it, the people who set the frame, who do the layout. I mean, you've got all of these people working together over this process that takes about a year and a half. It's this deeply collaborative form of storytelling as opposed to like, you know, a guy with a guitar singing a song or a play. That's much more pared down version of storytelling, but it's related.
3: One of the main things that makes me feel like I'm not the target audience of some kids' cartoons is the music and the way that it is – kind of overwhelming. And you might think on the surface level, it's kind of, it seems it's sort of the same as what was established by Looney Tunes. Like we're going to have a constant, or Tom and Jerry, that there's going to be the constant thing in the background. But there seems to be different ways of doing it. And maybe it's just that when I was first completely growing out of cartoons, it was the 80s where there were especially offensive soundtracks. But there are a lot of things even now that I'll turn on just for a few seconds and it'll just, there's a certain tone to the overwhelming music that is very different than what is in even the most over, uh, scored movie or short film.
0: Yeah. Well, sure. Well, like plays or, or movies, the result of what's made can be too leading. It can be too on the nose. It can be too obvious. Or it can be very subtle and just kind of hang back. Or it can kind of assist what's happening visually. That all depends on who they hired and who is collaborating to do this. Because some shows, it's like, that music is really annoying. I don't want to watch this because I feel like I'm being led to the nose to the joke or the story, and I don't like that. Whereas others, it's just like, this just, it enhances it so beautifully that you just hardly even notice it. There's just different variations depending on what show you're watching. It's another thing I want to mention, too, is that I think animation, as well as video games, it's one of the last sources of musical education that this country has, that America has. I think, you know, we've really killed the arts and our education about theater and music and fine arts. And it's to the detriment of our entire country that this happens. But kids can learn good music. They can hear great songs, an actual tune. They can hear orchestral music. They can hear full-on programmatic 19th century music, whether it's Harry Potter or even Looney Tunes, the broad stuff can have a full orchestra with it. Uh Clone Wars, all the stuff we did with with Star Wars. I mean you got Kevin Kiner there is, is just doing a, a full-on orchestra, is playing this beautiful programmatic music. And kids listen to it and they like it because they're connected to it. They're connected to not just the story, but also to the music. I did a few um, of these video games live concerts that my friend uh, Tommy Tallarico was doing where he would travel the planet and set up with the local orchestra and you'd all play through orchestrated versions of video game music. Everything from Pong all the way up to Final Fantasy or everything. Just stuff that's just full on. It's John Williams. It's just full on orchestral music. And you have an entire packed audience of kids with their parents who are eager to come to hear music and to experience art because they play video games and they watch cartoons because they learn this from that. It's incredible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I did one of those concerts in, uh, in Boston they're a video game orchestra concert. I sang in the choir in that one and it was really great. I was up at Boston Symphony Hall and it was, like you said, a packed audience and people were so excited. And they did a mix of movie music for the first half and the second half was all video game music. Another thing that orchestras are doing that's really interesting and they do it partially with cartoons, but they also do it with live action is, you know, playing the score while having a big screen you know, event for everybody to come and watch. And I think that's just brilliant because those scores, you know, some of them are okay, but a lot of them are absolutely stunning. And they're great pieces of art.
0: Yeah. They do that out here regularly where, you know, it's Nightmare Before Christmas. I think they do for Halloween and you know, Danny Alpin comes and sings some stuff or they have some of the original cast, Or if it's a Christmas show or it's Jaws or, you know, it's whatever. And people love that. They love to hear live art. I mean, I think it's a real, it's wonderful. There's so much screen time media, but it doesn't extinguish the hunger to have the connection that you get from having live living art performed.
3: That seems to be one of the marks of pitching a cartoon to be appreciated by an older audience, even if you're reveling in the fact that young people are hearing good music. I'm thinking of the things that I just was subjected to on Saturday mornings in the 70s, that, you know, how cheap can we make it? (laughs) We didn't even notice that, like, the animation was terrible, And certainly wouldn't necessarily make the connection or see the difference, the obvious difference between the Looney Tunes that had, you know, full on orchestral scores and the stuff that was actually being produced in 1975 that had, I don't even know what it had. But it was, well, yeah, (laughs) if I think about Scooby-Doo, which was, you know, one of the more successful, palatable, (laughs) something that has stood the test of time much more than a lot of the other things at the time. It's what, like three or four themes that are repeated over and over again. Boop. Boop, boo,
1: boo, doo, 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 doo. But that's almost like old melodrama, though, too, right? Like, there are themes that mean certain things, and it, it triggers something. You're like, oh, this is the bad guy, or something scary is going to happen. And that's, there's something in that that's still based in vaudeville, I think, as well. You really
0: didn't have any choice but to watch those shows as a kid in the 70s. <laughs> but now there's this flood of content and ultimately I think it very clearly pushes towards greater quality and greater variety. Cartoons are not just made for little kids now, you know. They're made there are they certainly made for little kids. They're made for younger kids and kid kids and then there's teenager shows and there's shows that are really kind of for the college crowd. And stuff that's just really kind of hard R, you know, like Love and Robots type stuff, that's like, that's really not for a kid. And you can find that, whether it's animated or or on camera, with the great flood of content that's being created by the streaming services now. It's like never before. I mean, it, But as far as animation goes, I mean, it, it feels like a total renaissance to me. I mean, there's more work, there's more good quality animation being made now than ever, by far.
2: Would you also say there's more bad animation being made now than ever? Because that's kind of true of other TV genres. You know what?
0: There is bad, but the way it feels to me is when I turn on the television now, I generally will hit the streaming services, and I just want to see the good stuff because if this stuff isn't any good, I've got a 100 other things I can go check out. And so I think it selects for quality now in a way that it did not before. There's certainly mediocre stuff or just stuff that they just kind of buy up just to have content from everywhere in the world or or, or that's already in pre-existence. But stuff in terms of what's being made now, if you want to bring the eyeballs to your little subscription service, you've got to bring the awesome new fresh cool content and you've got to bring a lot of it because they can finish that in a day. It stokes the hunger for even more, but it's not just any content. It's got to be the good stuff. That's the good news for people that create as well as for the people that consume, just so long as you can find some money in it. <laughs> that might be the hard part.
3: <laughs> I did actually watch a few episodes of Love, Death, and Robots today in, in preparation for today. I watched some of it when it came out. And even the stuff, you know, and some of that is is hard R, as you say. There's sex in it. There's swearing in it. There's conceptual, like many short stories, things do not end well. Yes, like the old heavy metal. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But there's still something that's, like, I was thinking, if this exact same thing was done with live action and fancier CGI, would it work? And, see, I don't know whether it's being pitched still at a younger age, I'm saying in quotes, or whether there's just... You kind of suspend your expectations of realism regarding the timing, regarding the tone, because you're already seeing something that doesn't look like actual people. And so you can be just a little quirkier or you can do different things with the tone that I think if you just saw it as live action, you would just say, this is bad.
0: Yeah, you have much more freedom because it's animation, but it's also cheaper. Animation is a lot cheaper to produce than to make a a television series or a movie.
1: Really, even though it takes a year and a half to get the final product out. Like, I I would think that all those people that had touch it.
0: The budget for an animated episode of a show is less than an on-camera show, generally speaking. I'm not talking like a YouTube show or uh, some reality shows. Those are probably cheaper. (laughs) You can have something that looks really awesome, but that gives you much more freedom and even political cover. For instance, after 9/11, we on American Dad, we were I think the second show to bring on George W. Bush. It wasn't a mean episode. It was actually a pretty fair episode where he accidentally got some alcohol in his drink and he got kind of he went kind of crazy. But it was like nobody on on camera except for the South Park boys dared make fun of the president right after nine eleven, but a cartoon, it was okay. That you've got a lot of cover to make political points and satire and parody if you're in an animated show than you do with on camera, interestingly.
2: And I think that goes right back to your question, Mark, about being separated from reality with love, death, and robots. and. No one would watch that if it was live action, right? It would be horrifying. It's not animated, but with Kill Bill, I mean, they ended up adding gore to make it cartoonish because the right amount of gore, it was too much. It was painful to watch. But as, you know, you have jets of blood shooting out of someone, it goes from being gruesome to, you know, grotesque in a way that's more acceptable as a absurd grotesque. So, you know, that's really something that cartoons can manage. That live action, it's much trickier.
0: Yeah, you can get away with a lot more in all sorts of different ways. Just so long as you bring the audience along with you, you can go.
3: (laughs) Well, yeah, it's interesting that live action, when it gets really over-the-top gory, like it's actually thought of as cartoonish. That what you're doing in adding the blood in Kill Bill, or uh, speaking of Lucy Lawless, that Spartacus show that she was on There was so much like slow motion blood splashing and spraying about like that i'm like what kind of weird like porn sort of thing <laughs> what is this appealing to exactly i think that's an aesthetic that comes from animation the way it reads to me is that when
0: they say it's cartoonish to me it means it no longer obeys the laws of physics That what you're seeing, you know, like with a computer-generated monster often, it's like that's not scary because it's clearly not in this physical universe and its movement and what it's doing, it doesn't obey physics, so I don't believe it and it doesn't make me scary. It's a real trick with an on-camera show to do something that is really cartoony, whether it's like Roger Rabbit or Scott Pilgrim. It's a really cartoony mode of storytelling, but it still kind of works or... To do it like Mad Max Fury Road, where there's actually a good amount of digital in that movie, but you don't notice it. And the reason you don't notice it is because they shoot it and they choreograph it so that the physics of it work. And it lines up with our understanding of how the world works and it feels real. It doesn't feel like it's cartoonish. That's part of why I love that.
1: Even if it's not like our world, they follow their own world's rules, right? So the aesthetic is still the same as what their live action stuff is even if it's animated.
0: It's just it makes a lot of difference, I think, if something falls when it's hit or that there's an impact and it registers in a way that I think it's, you can't tell why or how, but it's like that feels authentic and that is obviously created in a computer. It's two different things.
3: Yeah, and I'm trying to think about things stretching the other direction, that certainly in the area of graphic novels, it's not just, Some of the most popular ones, Mouse was one. Here is basically a story of what happened to me during the Holocaust. And there's a a, a lot of political stuff that's more recent than that, of, you know, such and such being a refugee or something. And so stretching from the comic toward, we're talking today about cartoons as opposed to animated features, which it seems like that's a whole different way of storytelling. That essential to this is that it be short.
0: I will sometimes ask, why is this a cartoon? Why did you choose to make this a cartoon? We're not utilizing the full canvas here. But sometimes to render it like that way can be interesting. I'm thinking of comics now. I think there's a comic about Bertrand Russell's life and also one about uh, Richard Feynman. And I think there's one with Kafka as well, where it just takes you through this person's life. And it's not really cartoonish, but the way that it's told visually has, I guess, a cartoonish angle to it, even though it's really very realistic.
1: And they did that with A Scanner Darkly. Do you remember that movie? Same kind of idea, right? And Waking Life, I think, another kind of like that, where it was like...
2: Well, those were those rotoscoped ones where they had the live action and they drew over it. So that was yet another... Yeah. Yeah, an aesthetic choice, right? They really could have just filmed Keanu Reeves and just made that the movie, but they decided to animate the whole thing on top of the film.
1: I guess it was to make us feel like we're in a dream world, right? I think that was, if I remember, that was part of the idea. Is like, what's reality? And I don't know. I I wonder if people like Mark like movies like that. Somewhat philosophical.
3: I enjoyed that, and I actually did not remember it being animated. I mean, I guess because, Brian, you're saying that it was sort of a a hybrid. But I I remembered it just being like a live-action thing that was treated a lot. Like, that's just how my memory interprets it after the fact.
2: Well, it wasn't the old Bakshi rotoscoping I and mean, it was better than that. I guess there was this whole thing where Keanu Reeves didn't shave his beard and it was super hard to animate over cuz it's so patchy and the director like they lost millions of dollars on his beard. So No. That's what happens <laughs> when you don't shave. We'll ask Keanu when we have him on a future episode. He'll tell us. Right, totally. <laughs> Any other stories
3: d in terms of where maybe you didn't know? What audience are you were pitching to? Like, is this a kid's cartoon? Like, this is supposed to be a kid's cartoon, but what is this joke doing in here? Or, like, or are these things all very kind of marketed beforehand and all these decisions are made before you even see the script?
0: Well, usually, I mean, you kind of think of it as you're putting on a play in a way and you just kind of have to arrive at an agreed upon tone and pace, at least. And then ultimately it's the showrunner, the person who's in charge of the cartoon that's deciding on that and setting all of that. And so that's our ultimate audience right there when we're creating it is that. It's rarely brain surgery to arrive at something that works, something that's pretty clearly what the solution to the puzzle needs to be. Uh, Like I say, (laughs) originally when we started doing Adventure Time, John DiMaggio, you know, who did Jake the Dog, he's like... I don't know what any of this means. I don't even know why I'm doing this. (laughs) He was was really aggravated because (laughs) you'd go in and it's like, well, you know, I'm voicing this giant elephant monster with lollipops coming out of its head, but they just want this plain little normal voice. It's like, I don't even, it doesn't make any sense to me. And then you're reading this scene that doesn't make any linear sense. It's it's, it's such a nonlinear script. But it's only later once they fashion in the music and just the timing and the editing and the and the artistry that surrounds it in sort of this neo-yellow submarine kind of a way, that's when it made sense. That's when it came together. That was a, a unique show because usually it feels a little more cut and dry than that. <laughs>
2: And the one in your list of works that really had me most interested in terms of how it came together and what it was like was Space Jam, which is a movie, but this combination of, you know, live action and cartoon. And you're also dealing with an athlete making a, Michael Jordan's not an actor, but he, you know, he was doing this thing and advancing his career. And I just, I have to imagine it, the whole thing was really different from maybe other things you were involved in.
0: That's a a monolithic octopus of a project where you've got to have a special team to be able to coordinate that and put it together. Space Jam was unusual from a lot of different ways. It was kind of a Roger Rabbit type of a movie. And Roger Rabbit worked beautifully just because, you know, you have Robert Zemeckis and Spielberg and other top people who've got the vision and the firepower to get that done. I think they also had a little more time. Space Jam, I think they literally had about a year and a half from let's start this to It's opening, (laughs) which if you know anything about the making of movies or, or animated movies, animated movies will take years to produce and to figure out. And this was not just an animated movie. This is live action plus animated. Plus, you've got sports stars. It's crazy. My standpoint, it was fun. Where I'd go in, I think I did a day or two with doing green screen stuff with Michael Jordan. But mostly, Ivan Reitman would bring us in, and we'd just kind of, uh, riff around and play around with the script and come up with something that works. The thing that was interesting was that, you know, they'd come back, and Reitman was used to working on, on camera shows, where you shoot something, you watch it, and then once it, you think, ah, we, we need to change the timing a little bit on that. We need to, we need to reshoot that. Whereas with animation, you've got something that has taken weeks or maybe a month or two to create. And you look at it and you say, I want to change that timing just a little bit. It's like, we don't have time to do that. It's really hard and really expensive. And so they had to go all over the planet and pay all kinds of money to get all these different studios just to complete it. It was a scramble to get the thing done. But happily, I think it came out really pretty well. And people seem to still think of it very fondly, but it was a real tangle to create. Fortunately, my role in it was just fun. It was just fun to, to do Daffy and Taz and uh, exciting. And, you know, I just got to do the fun part.
1: <laughs> I have a question. You were talking about how, like, you would get the script and you'd play around with it. How much of that are you allowed to? Or is it more so what do you allow yourself to do before you end up getting a writing credit?
0: I don't think I've ever gotten a writing credit. I might get a little bump in the fee if I sing a song. Once I, I actually improvised a melody, and they tried to get me to sign up with ASCAP, which I tried, and it's like the interface on this ASCAP sign up is terrible, <laughs> uh, or BMI It's like, I really don't care. You can just have it. I, uh, but man, they really wanted me to sign up for that. <laughs> they were good sports about that. But normally I just like to, uh, lazy person that I am, I like to prepare as little as I can because it actually just usually works against me. If they give me the script beforehand, which sometimes they often don't, if I've got like paragraphs that I have to read, well, then I want to be familiar with those so I can get through it and not waste everyone's time. But generally speaking, it's a much more efficient session if I just swing at the ball that they throw at me rather than have it all prepared and then have to unbuild it and then create something out of, you know, the hole that I just dug. It's much easier just to take it in an improvisational way. Put them in there. Put them in there. Let's go. <laughs> put him up. That's right.
3: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, of course, Mel Blanc did all of the voices himself. I mean, are there – it seems like that is, I guess, on the, uh, the shows that you're on with Seth MacFarlane, that he gives himself the two or three leads <laughs> – That's still run like a play, that he basically just does the voices in real time? or
0: Yeah, in doing a Fox sitcom like uh, American Dad, Family Guy, the way they do it is like they do an on-camera television show where you actually have a table read with the cast sitting around the table with the writers and then probably executives and the people who make the show are sort of serve as the audience in the conference room and you read straight through the show and you put it on its feet like an audio play. That's unusual. That doesn't happen in other cartoons. Other cartoons, you go in and they give you your script. Sometimes just the pages that you do in the script is all you get. And then you just create it piecemeal or a little chunk of it. Or maybe, you know, like SpongeBob, they'll often have the whole cast in and we'll go straight through it all together, scene by scene. But the Fox animated sitcoms, those are unique where we get to read through the entire thing, full performance energy, and it's really fun. (laughs) <laughs> really, but yeah, you just you jump from character to character.
2: You talk in your website about how early on in the Clone Wars you would do the different tracks of the clones. They have such similar voices, but subtly different. But by the end you were really able to do them just going one after the next. And I unbelievable. And I, I was a big fan of that show, and I would not have imagined such a thing was possible because those clones were for a viewer, they had you know visual differences also. So but your job was really just those subtle voice differences, but to go back and forth between them.
0: I'm very proud of that. It's a very unique task to be given a voice actor. We're, we're usually not given something that unique. I'm very lucky that that was thrown my way, and it's really fun to do. It's the weirdest, oddest, most challenging thing I've probably ever had to do is exactly that. Run through and have this conversation of subtle differences, but it's a room full of, of guys all together, but each one has a different flavor, a different angle, a different age, a different status, and to switch subtly back and forth to them and keep it all distinct and keep it all accurate, that's key. Otherwise, the whole thing falls apart. It just becomes mush. I'm very proud of that, and happily the fans really love that, and we're going to bring the Clone Wars in for a landing here soon.
1: (laughs) So you're an adult now, but at one point you were a child, and at one point you... Not only watched cartoons, but I'm wondering what your first cartoon character that you remember trying to imitate, or the first types of sounds that you remember creating.
0: I wasn't trying to be an actor or a cartoon voice actor, really, until my late 20s. I didn't think that was an option or a reality, even. My first movie that I saw was Dr. Doolittle. Oddly enough, a guy who talks to animals and makes animal sounds. (laughs) My second movie was The Jungle Book, which I cried buckets at when he went to the man village at the end. It just broke my heart, but I loved it. It was great. And I got to say, recently I've rewatched a marvelous, but it's one of my favorite movies, really. It's called What's Up, Doc? It's a Peter Bogdanovich movie with Barbra Streisand and Ryan O'Neill, and it is a Looney Tunes cartoon. And it's G-rated, and it's made for grown-ups, and it's brilliant. But this kind of stuff, my love of cartoons, as well as monster movies, um, as well as science. I really liked science and biology. That's baked into me, and that's part of why this career is such a good fit for me, why it's not an effort or a strain. It it feels very natural and really fun, and it just fits me. It suits me well because it's woven from my life.
3: (laughs) I'm kind of surprised by this whole idea that it's more like a play, because what has consistently struck me about a lot of cartoons that I see often for short periods, often because, you know, I was in the room with my kids when they were watching them, is I'm imagining because of the collaborative process, because of the heavy the artifice that necessarily flows into it because of the type of art form, that there's something very different between it and telling stories directly to kids, say. Or putting on a play in front of an audience when you, you know, you expect them to react or doing stand up when you have a chance to shape it based on audience reaction that, that you have a, a much more serious disconnect between the audience and the product especially as a voice actor who you don't even know what they're going to do with it and what they're going to do with your voice. And so there have been so many cartoons that I've seen, you know, my kids have been watching them, like, who is this aimed at? Like, this is kind of maybe too boring or over my kids' heads, but like, it's certainly not aimed at adults. Whereas what you're talking about with Adventure Time actually sounds like, yes, it's adults writing and and getting in touch with their inner child, but it's still channeling something authentic, channeling your id in this sort of (laughs) Dada-esque, crazy, like, authentic story that makes sense in the way that it doesn't make sense. You know, that seems exactly the opposite of what I perceive as the overly something that is created based on market research or something. (laughs) Like, this is what we think kids are supposed to like.
0: Yeah, well, some cartoons are very specifically made to sell toys, which can actually be a great thing. The Lego movie, I love the Lego movie. That if ever there was a movie made to sell toys, that is the movie. <laughs> but I don't resent that or turn up my nose at it. On the flip side, you've also got cartoons that are made to teach kids. Yes, it's made to sell ads and that as well. But the objective of the show is to teach kids to play with each other well, to be nice. All these things that you want as a grown-up. I mean, there's a, a real objective there. And then you can take it all the way up to just have fun, just laugh, just laugh or knock the whole world down and laugh at it. There's there's all kinds of different cartoons for different people in different ages in their development.
2: Going back to that movie, uh, I know that voice. Dee, generally, did you have a positive view of that movie? Is it a pretty good depiction of the voice actor and what your job is and what your job isn't?
0: Ultimately, I'd rather hear the band play the music than hear the band talk about being in the band. <laughs> 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 yes. So, but I, I love all the people and they all get to talk about how they approach it and how they think of it and how fun it is and how much we like each other and all of that. Uh, and all of that's great, but nothing beats watching them making the sausage. Nothing beats watching the collaborative process of making this thing, making a, a live creative thing come to life out of nothing, seemingly. That, to me, is the most exciting part.
2: (laughs) Well, I will give it my full-throated recommendation. It's uh, streaming right now on Amazon in the U.S., (laughs) and I think the big takeaway really is that for me, and I I knew it, but the movie really drives it home is that it's doing voices is not the same as acting. Right. And there is one woman who says every time someone wants to do their, when they hear she casts voice actors and they say, can I do my porky pig impression? And she said, "I'll, I'll just pay you not to please. I just being able to do the voice is not the same as being able to act as porky pig. It's just completely different.
0: Yeah. There's doing a voice and there's doing a character. There's making a sound and there's acting. It's a different depth to the creation in a way, I guess.
3: You can say you're hunting rabbits, but then if you can't act when the rabbit appears to be dead and you're holding it and you say, I didn't actually mean to kill it. And you have to show that emotion or, and that
1: you're a real Shakespearean style.
3: Okay. See, now I've even lost the voice <laughs> trying to, trying to. It's
1: like, where's he going? I was. <laughs> were you in of Mice and Men there for a second too? <laughs> Ah.
0: But you're right. It's not just, you know, hey, I can say what's up, doc. It's like really, well, well can you improvise Bugs Bunny picking something up off the ground and and throwing it at Daffy Duck? That's actually a different thing completely <laughs> altogether.
2: <laughs> yeah, I can cut into someone's abdomen with a scalpel, but I'm still not a surgeon. So we can all
0: we can all do things. <laughs> oh, That's another way of it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Dee. This was really fun.
0: Yeah, it's my pleasure. To stand up for cartoons as well as all kinds of uh, creative collaboration. Just having come back from Comic-Con, I get to see, you know, just for a day or two, how much this touches people's lives and how much it makes people, it helps them make their lives make sense, it helps them to connect together, it helps them get through a rough time, it helps them reignite the life that they used to have and give them a sense of purpose and optimism. I mean, I'm really overselling it, maybe, but when you see the excitement that people, have to connect to these cartoons and these fantasy shows that we create. It's it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful affirmation of what we can do for each other. And the best part of it is all of these narratives, all of these shows are under a single roof at a convention where all these narratives are included and, and accepted and no one looks down at anybody else there is no violence there's no threat of anything everyone is into their own weird thing and everybody celebrates it and that is what this planet should be about
1: yes
2: if we want to survive <laughs> Well, that's a big if. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> All right, way to spoil an ending, Mark. Thank you, D. So long, everybody. <laughs> Bye.
1: Thanks, guys. Good night. So long, Scully. See you in St. Louis. Woo-hoo! Yes, D. Thank you.
3: Get more Pretty Much Pop at PrettyMuchPop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at Patreon.com/slash PrettyMuchPop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network. Please visit partiallyexaminedlife.com. And it's also presented by openculture.com.